Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it's been uh, at least a good three days or so since I was on the air last uh, with all of you, and I have missed being on the air with you guys, but I knew at some point I would come back on. But as I've said before from other uh, times when I've podcasted that uh, life in general can't revolve around podcasting. However, uh, the good news is that I was on assignment. I should say my wife and I were on assignment this uh, past Saturday. We uh, went back to uh, Colonial Williamsburg. Um, I've probably mentioned before that uh, for quite some time now, my wife and I have been um, getting what's called a Virginia Residence Pass. And what's nice about that is that you pay once, and then it's good for the rest of the year. So it's a great incentive to encourage those who live in Virginia um, to come uh, to Williamsburg uh, frequently, not just um, for things like, say, uh, Bush Gardens and uh, Water Country USA, which are far from Williamsburg, but to keep coming back to Colonial Williamsburg and appreciate everything there is to know from a historical uh, standpoint. Um, we had the um, distinction, or honor, I should say, of um, being at the Charlton stage um, this when at uh, Colonial Williamsburg and got to see um, uh, a gentleman uh, who portrays uh, Mr. George Wythe, whom uh, taught um, Thomas Jefferson, uh, taught uh, John Marshall, Littleton Taswell, for whom Taswell County is named after in Virginia, taught James Monroe, Henry Clay, a handful of, um, of Virginians or fine Virginians who went on to uh, do uh, incredible things in terms of leaving uh, impeccable uh, political legacies uh, for the great uh, Commonwealth of Virginia. So it was very worth hearing about uh, what Mr. Wythe had to say. I did learn something uh, new. Uh, I always learn something new whenever I go to Colonial Williamsburg, but uh, one thing that really um, struck me was that when my wife and I visited the uh, spinning-slash-weaving uh, shop, it's fair to say that London, England, had a greater population than Williamsburg, Virginia in colonial times. Well, uh, the average population in uh, Colonial Williamsburg probably ran about between 1,500 and 2,000, the only time the population doubled, or in some instances tripled, was when the House of Burgesses was in session. And they met um, usually about um, twice a year, uh, usually in the fall or the spring, depending upon when the royal governor requested that the Burgesses come into town in Williamsburg to, to conduct um, business and I will say that the uh, House of Burgesses, they met, the number of days they met in a session was all dependent upon uh, what was at stake. So basically the royal governor was the one that said that, you know, hey, this is the amount of time you all will need to be here to conduct official business. But what I did learn, uh, the reason why I'm mentioning that London, England's population was bigger than Colonial Williamsburg is because uh, it turns out that one in Every three uh, people living in London worked in the uh, textile industry. And, you know, clothing is important, but what we also often have to remember is that a larger population 
uh, is going to be working in an industry like the textile industry because you need many people to be part of what's called an assembly line to be able to get the uh, products made from start to finish. So learning about all that was rather interesting, but at the same time, uh, the primary discussion was had to do with um, the talk of separating from England. And as one gentleman said, you know, if you're going to declare your separation from England, you're also going to have to accept the fact that you are going to have to forego so many essential uh, commodities or goods that, sh that can only be accessible in England. And the reason why they may be more accessible in England than, say, Williamsburg is because there is a greater population of people whom are producing goods on a larger scale so that you, the consumer in America, can enjoy those goods largely because, you know, Williamsburg, for example, does not have the population or the manpower to uh, have eight or ten textile mills where, say, in London, England, you've got over maybe 20 at best. So it's just an example right there of... Um, of having a better appreciation of the population, say, in London versus Williamsburg, and why there and why there were those whom were hesitant upon severing ties with the crown, all in part because, for economic reasons. Well, I know I could go on and on, but if I did that, then I would uh, lose focus of what our primary um, focal point has been about for the last couple of weeks, and that is... Uh, Judy Bloodgood Bander's uh, book, Jack Jewett, Revolutionary Rider, The Ride to Save Virginia and the American Revolution. So where do we um, start in this next podcast? Well, well, we are going to focus um, a great deal about um, an assortment of things. Maybe I should say that. I know that's vague, but how about I start off with a leadoff question to um, modify things? Right. Well, here's our uh, lead-off question. Did General uh, Charles Cornwallis have a commander above him? I would have always thought if you're a general, why would you need to have a commander above you? Well, maybe it's fair to say that even generals themselves need to turn to someone from above for advice. They need to turn to someone above uh, for um, for requesting um formal consent on going forward with a with a mission a militaristic mission that is so the answer is yes general cornwallis did have a commander above him i'll give you some choices who do you think his commander above him was was it king george iii was it admiral richard howe was it general sir henry clinton or was it colonel banastray tarleton the answer is choice C, General Sir Henry Clinton. General Sir Henry Clinton is a very, um, he's a very interesting character. I, I did a little research on him. He had supported the uh, Southern Campaign strategy for bringing the conflict into the Southern colonies after the stalemate from uh, Monmouth Courthouse, uh, New Jersey, uh, in June of 1778. 
After um, that battle in New Jersey, that's when the British realized that, look, we're now at this stalemate. We have not been able to strike the decisive blow in the northern colonies, and we haven't really been able to strike that major decisive blow in the middle colonies of um, New Jersey and uh, Pennsylvania. Although the British did win at Brandywine and at Germantown, they still had not been able to really uh, strike a blow that would have uh, pretty much um, ended this uh, greater conflict all, all for once. So, obviously, the final decision was to go southward to see if they could really put the dagger in the heart to the greater uh, American cause. So, General Clinton supports what uh, Cornwallis and Tarleton have done um, battlefield tactic-wise in the smashing victories they um, attained uh, Cornwallis at Camden, uh, Tarleton at uh, Waxhaws. And this is in uh, Waxhaws was in May of 1780. Uh, the siege of Charleston was late March into the early part of May of 1780. Okay, so uh, Sir General Sir Henry Clinton is has supported that. So everything's just going really well for Britain. So what could go so wrong that would uh, change everything? Well, before 1780 ended, General Sir Henry Clinton made a non-battlefield blunder that greatly backfired, okay? Uh, whenever you hear the word blunder, folks, what do you think of? Do you think of uh, when someone makes a blunder, is that a wise decision or a bad decision? A bad decision. A bad decision, in this case, uh, was one that, obviously, as I said a second ago, was non-battlefield related, but I'll give you all time to think about what this possible blunder is. Hang tight for just a moment. I should point out here real quick that um, my wife and I, want we have a handful of shops that we like going into in Colonial Williamsburg, and one of them is uh, Spice and Tea in Merchant Square, uh, Spice and Tea Company. They have a great assortment of teas. Of course, I know I did that book series not long ago, American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution. Of course, if I was alive during that time, uh, there were many in this country, in America, who were not big fans of tea. So the fact if if many of those uh, individuals learned that I was drinking tea, I think they would have uh, frowned upon me and said, um, what's the matter with you? Are you not gentle? Are you not manly enough to be drinking the hard stuff, Kirk? Like, you know, liquor, punt, uh, what do you call it? Liquor, beer? Because tea was referred to more as a ladies beverage for what would you call for better social graces of the time? So the bottom line is, is that, yes, the times have changed. But when you go into spice and tea, great selection on teas and great selection on spices um, for grilling and just for uh, seasoning all around. But anyways, <laughs> back to where we need to be. This blunder that uh, General Sir Henry Clinton made, he took it upon himself by revoking parole amongst all Patriot militia and people of South Carolina. Why did he revoke their paroles? Well, let me ask you this. What, in the battles at uh, Camden 
and uh, the Siege of Charleston, more notably the Siege of Charleston, Sir Hen General Sir Henry Clinton had basically said that, hey, look, for all of you Patriot militiamen whom took up hostilities against the crown, I will grant you parole on one condition. If you can uh, promise not to take up arms anymore against the crown, you will be allowed to retain your personal property. Okay? What do I think of personal property? Like, what, what do I think of here, folks? Land. Farmland. Think about it. For many of these men, they're in the militia, they are, you know, everyday commoners. They don't have 500 acres of land. They might have, say, between 25 and 100 at best, but they're not in the elite um, rankings of uh, South Carolina society. So basically, they're non-gentry men. Most of these militiamen are. But uh, Sir General Sir Henry Clinton has told them, look, um, if I will uh, grant you all parole, that is, you do not take up arms against the crown for the duration of this war, and... Um, and by not taking up arms, you will uh, be able to retain all of your uh, home possessions besides uh, land. Well, before, like I said, before the year ended, he makes this blunder. He's, I don't know what the man was thinking, but I can tell you this much. He was, um, he was out of his mind. It really, it's a stupid move. He just decides out of nowhere that he's going to make this change. But the problem is that revoking the parole did not involve any formal direct consent amongst the Patriot peoples. In other words, he didn't go before a mass uh, group of militiamen or just everyday people and say, hey, look, um, there's been a change in things and I need to uh, reconsider some things. <laughs> well, even if he said that, I can't imagine what the... Um, what the overall response would have been in the greater crowd, but the bottom line is is that he went um, behind their backs without any means of uh, formal consent and revokes their parole, and it pretty much led many, if not all, of the South of South Carolinians, whether they, regardless of whether they were militiamen or everyday uh, people, to take up arms once again in fighting the crown. Okay. So revoking the parole of, of a large number of, um, of um, militiamen has now uh, stirred the pot even more. So it's fair to say now that the game is on even more. So General Clinton no longer wants any form or existence of neutrality in South Carolina, which meant eliminating parole altogether. By issuing this revocation notice or doctrine, he did this before he uh, was, was due to go back to New York. Think about this. You're leaving to go back up north. And do you really think out of nowhere by revoking these people's parole that they're going to just sit back and say, Oh, okay, since you've revoked our parole, I guess we're going to remain subjects. Subjects who don't have a voice. Well, it leaves this decision, I think it's fair to say that even this decision alone on General Sir Henry Clinton's part um, left um, 
General Charles Cornwallis and Colonel Banastray Tarleton in a bit of a bind. Well, for one, these two men are left to command the Carolinas, but it comes at an expense that even General Clinton himself never thought could have happened, meaning that Cornwallis and Tarleton and other British officers would have to be um, forced to engage their troops into a style of fighting that many of them had never um, dealt with before and would be in for a rude awakening when it was exposed upon them. Irregular warfare, or what we call guerrilla warfare. Remember that style of fighting where, you know, you're in, um, in the woods and all of a sudden the enemy fires at you and your whole form line formation's messed up, you're, you're on the run, and if you're trying to chase the enemy, the further you get into those woods or the further you go, the further you venture into the forest, uh, you don't know what might hit you next, but the chances of coming out alive are slim to none. So yes, General Clinton really had no idea what he was getting himself into when he revoked these people's paroles. I think it's fair to say, had he not revoked their paroles, it's fair to say that the British would have eventually gotten out of South Carolina a little bit sooner and into North Carolina and probably would have made their way into Virginia a lot quicker. And who's to say that maybe Jack, who's to say that Jack Jewett might not have made it to Charlottesville in enough time to save uh, the government, Virginia's government? One's just left to wonder all these things. We just never know. So what's unique about June 11th of 1781, or I should say really right after June 11th, but I should say around the middle part of uh, the beginning of the middle of June of 1781. So what's unique? General Cornwallis received a letter from General Clinton, his commander, requesting to send back roughly 3,000 of his Virginia troops back north to New York. I don't know what uh, Clinton is thinking, but I just feel like this man is very inept. He's very unfit even for his own duties. But now he wants 3,000 of Cornwallis's troops back up north into New York. There's not any fighting going on in New York, folks. All right, well, does Cornwallis respond back? We'll find out here in a moment. But Clinton's letter stated that he wanted to end the Southern campaign and relocate this force of 3,000 troops back into New York City. Okay, it's one thing to want to end a campaign, but there has to be a way to go about ending it. You can't just, you know, we don't have telephones back back then, folks. So even with this letter alone, isn't going to carry a whole lot of relevance. We can't just say tomorrow, oh, uh, we all hostilities in South Carolina and in the Carolinas are going to end tomorrow, and therefore we shouldn't do anything else in Virginia given what's already happened. just doesn't work that way. So Cornwallis did respond back, and I do have to give him credit for how he uh, responded back to uh, Clinton. He responded in a letter by saying that if the 3,000 men went north, he would be at a disadvantage in occupying an area across Yorktown or across the York River in Yorktown, known as Gloucester Point. And uh, Gloucester, Virginia is just uh, north of Yorktown, overlooking the York River. Um, you have to uh, go over a bridge that 
leads you on to U.S. 17. So Gloucester Point basically was where Cornwallis was going to um, eventually uh, establish a post. But it would, uh, but without the uh, 3,000 men, then yes, he's really at a disadvantage in terms of um, in terms of, of several things. But in the end, General Clinton did allow Cornwallis to keep the full 3,000 uh, troop force in Virginia, which I will say was probably one of the probably one of the few smartest things he did in this Southern campaign, considering just how big of a blunder the decision he made in revoking uh, everyone's uh, parole on the Patriot side in South Carolina. But General Clinton did allow um, Cornwallis to keep the full 3,000 troop force in Virginia, which enabled um, Cornwallis come the long run to perform the necessary measures. And what kind of measures, what I mean by necessary? How about like constructing readouts? And what are readouts, folks? Do any of you know? Uh, they, it's another word for fortification, or defense fortification, as a means of um, protecting um, protecting a line of uh, troops from um, enemy fire, where if there was no defensive fortification, that the greater likelihood of death would be more imminent. So come August 1st, Cornwallis and 1,500 soldiers within his army arrived into Yorktown from Portsmouth. But over time, the other, what, the other remaining numbers of his army will arrive. So, but on the other hand, it's probably good that not all the soldiers arrive at one time, because you never know what could happen. And if everybody arrives at once, um, that could also give um, the opposing side some means of acquiring intelligence on uh, troop movements uh, coming from point A to point B. All right, our next question is the following. Where exactly was George Washington for a good part of uh, 1781 prior to the siege of Yorktown? Was he at uh, Mount Vernon, his estate? Was he in um, Williamsburg? Was he in Richmond? Virginia, or was he in New York City? The answer is choice D. He was in uh, New York City. Now, during the summer of 1781, there are a lot of comings and goings, but if you're on the Continental Army side, you're actually starting to see more things evolving for the better. During the summer of 1781, uh, General Washington, uh, along with um, the French Army under Gen General Rochambeau, uh, unite together in converging on Virginia's uh, Chesapeake Bay, where the French Navy would set up a blockade, cutting all British reinforcements from the north, meaning that any reinforcements coming from, say, New York City or Philadelphia would not have any access into um, the waters of the Chesapeake Bay. And this blockade also included preventing General Charles Cornwallis and his troops from escaping by sea. So, in other words, Cornwallis was going to be um, landlocked. In other words, he only had access by land, but he would not be able to have any access of, of leaving Virginia in terms of getting access to the sea. How many um, American troops did Marquis de Lafayette advise Governor uh, Thomas Nelson, that is Virginia's governor, 
How many American troops do you think Marquis de Lafayette advised Governor Thomas Nelson of for defending Virginia regarding the Yorktown siege? I'll give you a number, a number range. Uh, the number range is between 10 and 15,000. Uh, what number do you think it could be, folks, between that range of 10 and 15,000? The answer is 12,000. 12,000 troops, folks. That's a lot. But when you consider all of the um, struggles that Virginia had endured in terms of not being able to fortify um, a lot of places prior to and leading up to the uh, British um, going west into Charlottesville and almost coming close to capturing Thomas Jefferson and other key members of the Virginia legislature, I can understand why a, a number as high as 12,000 troops was needed. Governor Nelson supported what Lafayette said per his findings, and, you know, Governor Nelson's no stranger to war, folks. I mean, he's he served in the American Revolution himself. He, he knows um, the ins and outs with uh, logistics in terms of how to go about coordinating um, fundamental operations that regards, that pertains to... Um, food, weapons, and just general supplies. How are these um, essentials going to be transported from point A to point B and not run any risk of falling into the hands of the wrong people? And what do I mean by the wrong people, folks? The British. Think about this. You know, remember how uh, some of Tarleton's men below him intercepted uh, dispatches? And not only were they intercepting these letters, but they were going to the sites where the provisions were, like the gunpowder and other armaments. And what happened with all that gunpowder, folks? It was destroyed by the British. So the bottom line is that for uh, Governor Nelson, he's got to coordinate the, the necessary logistics, logistical operations, but making sure that all of these provisions get, uh, get secured in places where the enemy is not going to find them. And that is a task onto itself, but he is certainly up to it. And it would be fair to say that without Governor Nelson's leadership, the outcome at Yorktown would have proven opposite, considering what had taken place in Virginia before and into early June 1781. Governor Nelson knows or knew that the siege at Yorktown was the last best chance for Patriot forces to successfully cut off British reinforcements, including any potential means of escape by sea. You know, you're only going to get but so many chances to uh, strike a blow at the enemy. And this is what I call one of those missions that could be like the equivalent of a Trenton, where Washington and his forces crossed the Delaware River on Christmas night. Um because if they hadn't done that, then the whole uh, cause for uh, independence from the um, American Revolution movement alone would have uh, ex gone extinguished. So this mission here is almost like another uh, theme of victory or death. And as I said, yes, you're only going to get but so many chances to get it right. And so Governor Nelson now knows now that, um, that we have to do this now. Because if we don't, then Cornwallis will find a way to escape by sea, and then um, the status of our nation as a whole will still be will be left in um, lingo, in other words, or limbo. In other words, you know, 
yes, we may have already we may have declared our separation from England five years earlier, but if England doesn't recognize it, then we're left with no other choice but becoming subjects again to the crown. Now, how much longer did the Revolutionary War in Virginia last after Jack Jewett's ride of June the 4th? Do you think it lasted uh, seven and a half months, four and a half months, or or 12 months? Uh, the answer is choice B. It uh, lasted four and a half months. Four and a half more months, that is, folks. And um, the war itself in Virginia ended with Cornwallis's surrender come October the 19th, 1781. Hard to believe this October will mark 241 years. It's, you know, we think that's a long time, but it really isn't. I find it hard to believe in four years from now, America will be celebrating her 250th uh, anniversary. And, you know, I, I don't know if this will happen or not. If it doesn't, I'm, I'm okay with that. But if I'm alive in the year 2076, I'll be 97 years old, folks. And that means I will be alive to have seen America's tricentennial. I don't know what the world would look like in 2076, but um, but for those of you who would have remembered when America celebrated her bicentennial in 1976, yeah, that was a big deal. I remember my father telling me that he and my mom... Uh, went with uh, my maternal grandparents uh, to Boston in 76 and um, got to um, attend the uh, festivity, July 4th festivities up there. I can only imagine what it must have been like uh, in 1976 to have, um, to have uh, participated in the uh, festivities uh, celebrating uh, America's 200th birthday at that time. So, you know, when, to think about, you know, we're 245 years old, but yet we're not, you know, to some that might seem like a long time, but in reality we're we're still a young nation. And maybe that's okay considering all that's going on in the world today and how and and how uh we need to respond to things in the world, not just America, but everyone else nationwide and around the world. I found this uh interesting, and I don't know if many of you all would know this, but of course as we all know, Virginia is the largest of the 13 states at the, at, at the time of the American Revolutionary War and even before then. And yes, we all know that Virginia went as far um, away as, well, if you really want to know um, some earlier history of Virginia, uh, when the English came to what we now know as Jamestown, uh, being America's first English uh, permanent um, first permanent English settlement, the um, settlers who arrived over were convinced that Virginia went as far west as the Pacific Ocean. So prior to and leading up to these, this uh, Revolutionary War movement, Virginia goes as far west as Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, the Great Lakes, Wisconsin, even into present-day um, West Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, so, and we do know that there are legislators who are representing areas of what is the, of the Virginia we know then that would have encompassed Kentucky and Tennessee, but yet they are coming all the way to, say, Richmond to do business. So we have to keep in mind that men like Daniel Boone, who represent, 
who represented what we now know as Fayette County, uh, Kentucky, what, then it was Fayette County, Virginia, uh, you know, we do have to consider that Virginia probably has close to 100 counties, in my estimates. At least, I don't know if close to 100, but maybe just shy of 100. So my question to you all is this. How many counties in Virginia endured British attacks resulting in widespread destruction? I'll give you a number. It's uh, between 50 and 60. What number do you think it would be? exact number-wise between 50 and 60? The answer is 52. 52 counties in Virginia endured British attacks, resulting in mass destruction. That's a lot of counties, folks. And do you think these counties were all in one area, or were they in different parts of Virginia? They were in different parts. British destruction occurred as far south as the Virginia-North Carolina line. And when I think of uh, counties in Virginia that are right on the Virginia-North Carolina line, um, a handful of them come to my mind. Uh, Greensville County, where Emporia is. Uh, Halifax, uh, which is home to South Boston. Pennsylvania, which is uh, home to Danville. Uh, then you have uh, counties um, north of where I live in uh, what's called the Northern Neck area. Uh, like Westmoreland, uh, which is, was home to uh, President James Monroe, even uh, George Washington. You also have uh, other counties in the northern neck besides Westmoreland, like King George. Uh, and in case you're wondering, how is King George County named after King George III? No. Uh, King George uh, County is named after King George III's grandfather, uh, King George II, and there is a county not far from King George called Caroline County. Caroline County was named after King George III's grandmother, Queen Caroline. So in case you all are wondering, how did Caroline County and King George get their names in Virginia? Think of King George II and his wife, Queen Caroline. And then you have uh, parts of central Virginia and counties like Chesterfield, Henrico, Hanover, Goochland, and as far west as Albemarle County, home to Charlottesville, and Thomas Jefferson's estate, Monticello. And of course, Charlottesville being the interim capital, interim makeshift capital, and as we all know, had it not been for Jack Jewett's heroism, and I'll probably mention this again before this podcast segment ends, had it not been for Jack Jewett's um, heroism, um, Virginia would have been in an, in an even more sad, uh, desperate state of um, despair. I can't imagine, you know, it's one thing to not have a government. It's one thing to have a government in disarray. It's another thing to have a government collapse, meaning that no government is functioning. As, as I've said before, what happened in Virginia in 1781 was the equivalent of a 9-11 of its time. You know, when I was driving to uh, Bird Cellars Winery this past uh, Sunday, uh, two days ago, I was driving on Route 6, which is a very, very nice uh, scenic route. And uh, Bird Cellars being in Goochland County, every time I go out this way, I, I pass a m marker sign, um, a historic historical marker sign for Elk Hill. I mentioned in the last podcast that um, Elk Hill was home to Thomas Jefferson's um, 
Thomas Jefferson's wife, Martha, um, her side of the family owned vast amounts of property in Elk Hill. And as I was driving uh, past the marker sign and on the road, I thought to myself, I can only imagine what things must have looked like 241 years ago. Obviously, where, where I was driving, <laughs> that road would never have existed in a million years. I can only imagine if there were any roads near where I was driving, they were all dirt roads. They weren't the most attractive roads, but there were there were probably roads. Um, different species of trees would have been there. Some of them probably not even around today. So a far different landscape compared to what I would would know of now. But I can only imagine firsthand with the overall swath of, of destruction that um, Cornwallis and Tarleton and the British forces alone left behind around Elk Hill, knowing that nothing uh, was left to um, to have uh, been saved on the part of the British. You know, they were destroying crops, seizing livestock, taking people prisoners against their own will, capturing, taking 30 slaves only to uh, place them in um, facilities or in confines where other slaves were ill with smallpox and typhus, only for many of those 30 slaves to have died. I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing, folks. I mean, as I said in the previous podcast, no one sometimes, most of the time, nobody really comes away um, a winner in war. Yes, we might have gone on to have defeated the mightiest empire in the world, which was a great thing. But think about how many lives on the Patriot side were um, were lost, just as there were uh, on on the side of being a loyalist. So, yes, 52 counties, folks, were uh, saw destruction. And even if you lived in a county in Virginia that did not see any destruction, you still uh, had to have probably known of someone who was impacted. And it still uh, would have come across as some form of terror, something that never would have uh, left your mind. Had Governor Jefferson and other members of Virginia's government let me ask you this question. Had Governor Jefferson and other members of Virginia's government been captured, what outcomes would have proven successful to General Cornwallis? Let's be prepared to uh, listen to some uh, good answers here, folks, because there's more than one. Well, for starters, capture of men like Governor Jefferson and revolutionary leaders like Patrick Henry would have meant transporting them away to England, where punishment most likely would have resulted in a death by hanging for committing treasonous acts against the crown. Secondly, capturing Virginia's statesmen also meant General Cornwallis receiving more recognition and honor from above within the British government, a.k.a. the crown. Think about that. You capture the governor, you capture a handful of statesmen, you are going to get more recognition. You might even be, um, I mean, yes, he's got a rank of General Lord Charles Cornwallis. I mean, he, he might as well become Sir General Lord Sir Charles Cornwallis. But third, uh, transporting Virginia's uh, captured leaders to England would have greatly diminished America's true fundamental cause. And what was America's true fundamental cause, folks? separation from England and 
it's not just so much we are separating from England, but the document uh, being the Declaration of Independence, which listed all those grievances against the crown, which explained why these 13 colonies are of right and ought to be free from England. Had Governor Jefferson and members of the Virginia General Assembly been captured, it would not only have been a blow to Virginia, but a blow to the greater uh, movement, because if Governor Jefferson and other members of the Virginia and members of the Virginia Legislature could have could have been captured, that would have meant that um, leaders from other colonies would have also met um, would have also been at great potential. As a matter of fact, uh, from an earlier podcast, when uh, the British um, during that siege of Charleston, when things got so bad. Right before the um, the ultimate surrender took place, South Carolina's governor, John Rutledge, had to flee uh, for his safety and went as far north as into the North North Carolina-South Carolina line. But had the British captured uh, Governor John Rutledge, yeah, they would have sent him to England, and he would have uh, been tried for um, acts of treason and would have met a uh, punishment of uh, being one of... Um, Hang, of uh, hanging uh, of death by hanging. It should be fair to point out that by 1781, the British were becoming more tiresome and impatient from within. Why were they becoming more tiresome and impatient and impatient from within? Well, is it fair to say that they had not achieved their fundamental ob- objective? Yes, and that was to quash the rebellion altogether, where her subjects a.k.a. 13 colonies, would resubmit their allegiances to the crown. To the crown, folks. Mother, the mother country, England. Britain, come 1781, saw more losses than gains. The losses, more so from a militaristic standpoint, being battlefield deaths, woundings to prisoners, and lives unaccounted for. You know, lives unaccounted for, missing in action. But financially was another factor, too. Financially, the, the overall financial burdens of this war were just as bad, considering that the Treasury Department in England faced more deficits versus surpluses. <laughs> and, and remember, they faced that uh, huge deficit in the aftermath of the French and Indian War, where it was about 145 million pounds Whereas the Americans only had maybe about, I'm, I'm thinking between 5 and 10 million pounds. So, yes, you've got more deficits, deficits versus surplus. It's one thing to be in a deficit where you have a shortage of money. But if Parliament and, um, and the British government are struggling to find revenue for, um, for surplus means... What could have been a surplus for them? What could have been the biggest surplus? Captured leaders. Captured leaders like Governor Thomas Jefferson. Captured Virginia Assembly leaders like Patrick Henry. uh, Benjamin Harrison V. Richard Henry Lee. John Tyler Sr. Archibald Carey. Daniel Boone, who was captured but yet released a day later. I mean, my gosh! If you just captured one man alone, you they could have sent him back to sent him to England. 
Think about it. If they sent Daniel Boone to England, there would have been no Cumberland Gap. Sure, somebody else could have probably led that westward movement, but, you know, we just forget that if so-and-so had been captured, that there might not have been a particular movement down the road that they were a part of that um, did gain uh, significant relevance at the time for which it happened. So these had these captured revolutionary leaders in Virginia, had captured revolutionary uh, leaders in Virginia um, take place, had the British gone about capturing these men, that would have been the greatest surplus right there. And then... Virginia would have been left in an even dire situation. Okay, what do you do negotiation-wise to get to win back those who are held hostage? Well, in the eyes of the Crown, there's a simple answer. We'll release your hostages as long as you resubmit your allegiance to us. If you don't resubmit your allegiance to us, then we will still retain your subjects and then you know, we'll decide to do whatever we want to do with them. It's a dangerous thought, folks. Thank heavens it didn't happen, but just knowing that had Thomas Jefferson um, not um, looked out a second time from the horizon in Charlottesville, had he gone back inside his home, he would have been captured. Five minutes, folks. Five minutes that made all the, the difference in the world between life and death. Not only for Governor Jefferson, but perhaps for members of the General Assembly, in the, who were uh, living in uh, the, sh who were who had made who had taken up quarters in Charlottesville. Let's find out about this um, general. I don't believe many of you know about him. I didn't even know anything about this guy until I read this book. But let's find out about him. His name is General William Woodford. Was General William Woodford a native of Virginia? The answer is yes. He hailed from Caroline County. And for those of you who are, as I said earlier, Caroline County is not far from King George. Uh, Caroline County is not far from Fredericksburg, and it's north of Ashland. Uh, Caroline County is um, just south of, um, of, say, Manassas, for example, if that gives you any indication of where um, Caroline County is in uh, relation to northern Virginia. Uh, geographical um, knowledge. So yes, uh, William Woodford is a native of Virginia and that he hailed from Caroline County. He was born in October of 1734, so that means he would be about two years younger than George Washington, about nine years older than Thomas Jefferson. But uh, General Woodford is no stranger to the war, or just stranger to war in general, as his military record uh, dated back to the French and Indian War, he became a colonel to the 2nd Virginia Regiment of the state's uh, interim forces. He was responsible for driving out Lord Dunmore's presence in the aftermath of defeating his troop forces at Great Bridge, which is now Chesapeake, um, on December the 9th of 1775. So I, I had no idea that General... Um, William Woodford, before he became a general, that, yes, he was a colonel and that he was uh, responsible for driving out um, Lord Dunmore's presence um, in uh, Great Bridge, uh, because Lord Dunmore uh, basically oversaw uh, British troops try to attack, um, go about attacking American um, forces at Great Bridge, and uh, 
and it, that battle uh, being Virginia's first uh, resulted in, um, in, a, in a Patriot victory at the time. And I'm sure many of you are wondering, uh, how long did Lord Dunmore stay in uh, Virginia before he finally left to go back to England? He uh, stayed in Virginia until um, July of 1776, just before um, Congress um, motioned the approval for um, for the Declaration of Independence document, along with um, motioning um, the um, proposal to go forward with uh, declaring separation from England. So basically, Lord Dunmore uh, was in exile in uh, Virginia's northern neck around uh, Matthews County. That's right. I had read something a while back that uh, Dunmore was uh, in Matthews County up until the very beginning of July 1776. And he um, then set uh, he and his family um, returned back to England and, of course, never returned to America again. But uh, late 1779 saw General Woodford and his unit join the Southern Continental Army in South Carolina. Did uh, General William Woodford and his um, regiment participate at the Siege of Charleston, which was between late March of 1780 into um, the middle of May 1780? Uh, the answer is yes. General Woodford, along with his unit, listen carefully, folks, were captured. So, you know, remember Benj General Benjamin Lincoln? He uh, was forced to conduct the largest uh, surrender in the American Revolutionary War of uh, troops, just over 5,000. That was a uh, it was a very trying time there. So, sadly, uh, General Woodford and his Virginia regiment weren't immune from this. As for General Woodford, he got sent to New York City where he died... Listen, folks, he got sent to New York City. Do you think he was um, in a regular jail cell, or did he go into a prison ship, a British prison warship? He was forced to go aboard into a British prison warship where he spent out the remaining um, time of his life and sadly died on November 13, 1780. Is he buried in a cemetery? Yes, he is. He's buried at uh, Trinity Church in New York, and I found out where he's buried, being at Trinity Church in New York, is located at uh, the present-day intersection of Wall Street and Broadway in New York's final dis financial district of Lower Manhattan. I, I often wonder if, because of his rank, that he got a more decent burial than, say, someone of lower rank status who was not even... Um, in the highest ranking of, um, in the highest of ranks, if you were just a private, I'm not saying that all privates didn't get a proper burial, but if they were prisoners of war aboard uh, prison warships, I think it's fair to say that many of those um, individuals, if they were buried, they were, but we might think of their burials as like the equivalent of the unknown soldier. We, we need to keep in mind this, folks. Why is William Woodford's death important? Or why is it worth mentioning? Whereas William Woodford, or I should say General Woodford, died, he died a very uh, inhumane way. Think about it. He died aboard a prison warship. And remember, about 12,000 um, 
American soldiers died in these uh, prison ships. There was no ventilation. Um, many of these men did not have proper food. The food they ate was spoiled. I'm sorry to tell you all this, folks, but th this was like a mini holocaust uh, for the way they were treated. They were in, uh, the floors were filthy, uh, rat infested. There were rats. I mean, this was this was very uh, barbaric. And for those who died, uh, the British um, guardsmen would come down to the bottom. They would take the dead bodies, and they would either throw them overboard into the water, or they would take other other American uh, prisoners and have them bury the dead, only to be returned back into the ship below um, down in the cargo hold. So they were basically given, uh, real quick here, uh, two choices. Number one, you take up arms with the British. And if you take up arms with us, you'll be forgiven of all your sins. If you don't, then you will stay down below, and you'll pretty much die a traitor's death. So William Woodford died a very tragic, inhumane way. General Woodford, that is. Jack Jewett's ride on the night of June 3rd into the a.m. hours or early morning hours of June 4th saved countless Virginians' lives, most notably of higher ranking from governor to assemblyman, meaning these men were all spared from being subjected to die inhumanely. Inhumanely, folks, being confined to prisons where they would have awaited their death sentence via hanging. General Woodford sacrificed his life from below by refusing to take up arms with the enemy, being the British, meaning that by staying below, he and other countless prisoners were protecting their brethren, being their followers or their comrades, from above, whom still had it in them to fight the British and protect civilians from all around, like Jack Jewett had done so on his 40-mile ride to Charlottesville, saving Virginia. Not just saving Virginia, but saving Governor Thomas Jefferson and saving everyone from saving countless lives, uh, not only in the greater Charlottesville community, but the General Assembly. Had it not been for Jack Jewett and those who uh, participated with him, there may not have been as many as, say, like with Paul Revere and his um, dispatch uh, courier riders. But the bottom line is, is, folks, is that had it not been for Jack Jewett's ride, Virginia uh, would have uh, succumbed. Virginia's government would have been uh, quashed. And Virginia would have been the first of the 13 states more than likely to have been forced to surrender back in, surrender, or I should say, submit back to British control. On a bright note for General William Woodford, there are two counties in America named in his honor. Uh, if you go to Kentucky, there is a county called Woodford County. You go to Illinois, there is uh, Woodford County named in his honor. And how ironic that, considering that years ago, um, Virginia would have gone into present-day Kentucky and Illinois, two states that border each other, that it would make practical sense to have a Virginian be named, to have a couple of counties, one in each of those states, named in honor of uh, Mr. Uh, General William Woodford. 
Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and thank you again, as always, for listening. And when I'm on the air again next, uh, we're going to be uh, discussing the epilogue to Jack Jewett, Revolutionary Rider, The Ride to Save Virginia and the American Revolution. And, of course, I know when we think of epilogue, it means the end. But this will be a unique epilogue because we're going to learn more about Jack Jewett's life after this 40-mile ride. Because he did have a lot more uh, accomplishments. And many of those accomplishments, most of us uh, probably don't know. And when I read this book, I was amazed to know just how many other things he accomplished, even after this 40-mile ride that saved Virginia. Thank you again, as always. Uh, If it weren't for you all, I don't know where I would be in terms of podcasting, but I want to thank all of you for uh, doing such a great uh, job listening. Continue to get that word out. Uh, So I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time. So uh, meantime, take care for now and stay safe.